Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 41 this morning, and you can find it on page 924 in the Pew Bibles. Now, last week, we got to take an in-depth look at the Jerusalem Council. Now, that might not seem all that exciting when you hear that, but we often forget that the Jerusalem Council was a watershed moment in the life of the church when, by God's grace, they turned away from perversions of the faith that would attempt to either add to or subtract to the gospel to hold to the one true faith in Jesus Christ, to unite themselves, both Jew and Gentile, in truth, holding fast to God's will and God's ways, upholding sound doctrine, and confirming that through their unity and through their godly living. This is a controversy that could have wrecked the church from the very beginning. And yet we see it result in rejoicing in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. It's like going from a tempest that was saturating uh, an entrenched battlefield to the sun suddenly popping open and shining, rainbows, you have flowers blooming, everybody's happy and holding hands and skipping along down their merry way on this gloriously beautiful day. And you can kind of picture it in your mind, right? This, this, this happy, you know, upbeat music starts playing, the video goes into slow-mo so that you can see every distinct detail of the, the smiles upon their faces as they fr- and skip their way through the the flower-covered mountain meadow on their way to the crystal clear lake. And and just before it gets completely idyllic to the point where it's nauseating, real life sets in. Somebody falls, right? That record suddenly scratches, you know? They take other people down with them, and now they're all covered in mud. That's kind of like what we're dealing with in our text this morning. You see, shortly following this glorious council that allowed the church to move forward in unity, in fellowship, in joy, in love, and in truth, an unexpected conflict arises between two of the most unlikely characters, Paul and Barnabas, and it led to their separation. I mean, this is worse than when the Beatles broke up. This is worse than when Frodo suddenly turned to Samwise and said, hey, I'm taking the, the ship to Valinor and I'm leaving the rest of you behind. This is heartbreaking stuff that we see here. The whole church had come to an agreement on this huge issue. They're united together. They're moving forward in love. And then suddenly you've got this seemingly inseparable duo break up over what appears to be a rather trivial matter. And yet, the Lord uses it. So this morning, I want us to think realistically about quarrels and disagreements. We need to be aware that these kinds of things will happen. And yet, God has purpose in them all. We want to be aware of this so that we do not lose heart. And in order not to lose heart, we need to see these conflicts in light of the bigger picture, in light of all that Christ is continuing to do and teach as He faithfully fulfills His mission through His people as they bear witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Because when we can step back and when we can truly see God's bigger story, then we can truly trust in the fact that God really is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And even when people intend things for evil, God intends them for good. And that helps us to remain hopeful and patient. It helps us to love and to give grace even towards those who stand against us. It helps us to persist in our mission even through the most difficult and unexpected adversity. Because God's purposes are bigger than our own, unexpected conflict can yield surprising results. Because God's purposes are bigger than our own, unexpected conflict can yield surprising results. And so may God give us eyes to see the bigger picture in this conflict so that we can remain faithful in the midst of our own. So would you read with me Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Because God's purposes are bigger than our own, unexpected conflict can yield surprising results. As I don't know about you, but just thankful this week by how practical the Word of the Lord is and how timely. Now to get to the bottom of this, of what God wants us to learn about this event, we need to consider first this unexpected conflict and second, its surprising results. And so first, unexpected conflict. Now friends, most of the time we want to avoid conflict. We want to do all that we can to minimize, to reduce, to ignore, to pretend like conflict doesn't exist. We want to work really hard to be at peace with everyone, to make everyone happy, to put their interests above our own, to proactively encourage and build them up. And despite all of those efforts, it seems like conflict still ensues. It arises out of nowhere by the most unlikely people over the silliest issues, and it seems as though no matter what it is you do, conflict is unavoidable. I mean, when we look at this situation right here, does anyone else find it a little hard to believe that Barnabas, of all people, could have conflict with just anybody? I mean, this is Barnabas. Now, Paul, yes, I get that. Paul, yeah, he, he's a conflictual character, but Barnabas, really? I mean, the first time we see Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37, where it says of him, thus Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's Barnabas. He is a kind, generous, faithful church member, so much so that the apostles themselves called him son of encouragement. This is a guy that you want in your church, right? This is a guy who is a blessing to everybody around him, so much so that they nickname him son of encouragement. In chapter 9, it was Barnabas that stuck up for Paul, this former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, when everyone else was scared of him. When no one wanted anything to do with him. He vouched for Paul before the apostles, affirming Paul's dramatic conversion and his bold and perilous proclamation of the gospel, even at risk of his own life. When Paul's dispute against the Hellenist put him in danger... The church basically benched Paul. They sent him off to the sidelines of Tarsus for almost a decade. And Paul would have been there had it not been for the fact that Barnabas went and got him and brought him to the church in Antioch. Paul was all but forgotten out there until Barnabas came and brought him to help establish the church in Antioch. And there they served together as elders Uh, for at least a year until the Holy Spirit set the two of them apart for this first missionary journey. Uh, An adventure that was full of all sorts of highs and lows, ups and downs, perils, but nevertheless, they stayed together. They had this amazing ministry throughout Cyprus. The Lord opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He performed signs and wonders, miracle upon miracle. It was a great time. And though Galatia was much harder, they were driven from town to town. In Lystra, Paul himself was stoned and left for dead. They still stuck together. They were inseparable. And aside from that moment of weakness in Galatians chapter 2, when Barnabas was temporarily led astray by the hypocrisy of Peter and the others of the circumcision party, Paul and Barnabas stood side by side together in everything, including their defense before the Jerusalem council. These guys were a dynamic duo. This is Batman and Robin here, right? I mean, you you would not expect these guys to separate. Here in verse 36, after spending some days, more than likely wintering there in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, God set them on both of their hearts, first to Paul and then to Barnabas, to return and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaimed the word of the Lord to see how they were. And so for this second missionary journey, they wanted, their plan, their agenda was to backtrack to where they had already been to continue to establish and equip and expand the churches there both in Cyprus and Galatia, going back to cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe to build up the churches. And they're both on the same page there until Barnabas suggests that they take John Mark with them. Why on earth is that a big deal? Wants to take this guy with him. Now, John Mark more than likely is Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He and his mother, at least, if not more family members, were eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, his resurrection, and quite possibly his ascension. The church in Jerusalem met at Mark's mother's house. 
This is where Paul came to meet Mark in in Acts chapter 12. And according to Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, Mark was Barnabas' cousin. But Paul didn't want to take Mark along because they'd tried this before already. During the first missionary journey, John Mark had, verse 38, withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So basically, he started out with them, but he left before the work really got hard. What had happened in in Cyprus was a whole lot of ministry highs. Galatia was much more difficult, and, and here John Mark bailed before the work even got hard. And scholars, they want to speculate as to why John Mark left them. Some, some want to say, well, maybe he was concerned, uh, had health concerns either for himself or Paul or Barnabas. Perhaps he had issues with authority because, you know, when they started out, Barnabas was kind of the main guy. But over time, you know, Paul kind of seemed to overshadow Barnabas and he didn't like that very much. Or, or maybe he was just really excited about all that had happened in Cyprus and had to run back to Jerusalem to let everybody know, or maybe maybe he just missed his mommy and needed to go home. We don't really know, but Paul considers it to be a desertion, that John Mark flaked out on them, that he abandoned them and the work. This guy that they were raising up to share in their burden, to share in their life, to share in the responsibilities of this ministry had abandoned them. They quit on him, and, and, and they broke the, or he broke their trust with them. And so it was foolish in Paul's mind to take this guy along. He could jeopardize the mission just like he did the first one. And things are bound to be just as hard, if not harder. And so Paul's like, I don't think he's ready. And if he was the young man in Mark chapter 14, verse 51, which I think he was, then Mark had a real habit of running away to his shame. If you're not familiar with that verse, it's the young man that runs away naked when Jesus was arrested. And so you can see where Paul and Barnabas are coming from, can't you? I mean, Paul is like, look, we need somebody who is steady. We need somebody who will not quit, even at risk of his own life. And I don't think that that's John Mark. And Barnabas is like, well, you know, let's just give him another chance. You know, he's, he's my cousin. He said he's sorry. He wants to go. Uh, you know that there's potential there, so let's just give him another shot. And we could get both sides of this issue, can't we? All right, that's understandable. But unfortunately, verse 39 says, there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And that word sharp agreement there refers to an intense, passionate contention. It's where we get the English word that we never use anymore, paroxysm, right? A a sudden violent outburst like a paroxysm of weeping or a paroxysm of coughing. You know, you ever had one of those coughing fits where you feel like you're going to hack your lungs out? Like that. In the Old Testament, this word is used to describe God's great wrath and contention against Israel for Israel's prolonged sin. We see it in Deuteronomy 29 when it describes why God caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness. We see it in Jeremiah as he's talking about warning them of the coming exile because of their prolonged sin. But positively, that word is used in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24. 
to describe how we are to passionately encourage one another, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so it's, it's a violent disagreement. Now, violent, I, not, not in terms of coming to blows. I don't think that they're swinging fists at one another here. But clearly, they came to a point in which they were exasperated. Paul's like, look, if he has got to stop and he's got to write home every time things are going well, or he's got to want to quit and run home every time things get a little hard, then he cannot help us in this good fight of faith. Right? We are going to have to stop continually to recenter him on Christ, and that keeps us from the mission. And if he's going to quibble over authority issues, he's only going to cause division between us. And if he's concerned about our health, well, Christ himself has already told me about how much I'm going to suffer for the sake of his name. And so if I'm going out on this mission, that's part of my lot. And so anybody that's going with me, by proxy, is going to share in that same suffering. It's just part of what we're going to deal with. And so he's got to be willing to take up his cross and follow Christ. And if he can't deny himself, then he needs to just stay home. I cannot take him with us. And Barnabas, Barnabas is like, look, I gave you a second chance, right? If it were not for me, you'd be still making tents out there in Tarsus, forgotten, Right? I'm the one that stuck up for you when no one else would. I came to your defense. I had your back. And guess what, Paul? You did pretty a, a whole bunch of foolish things along the way as well. And still, I stood by you. And so we need to give this guy a second chance. Yeah, he failed. But you know what? When you fall off the horse, you got to get back up on it. We need to take him along to give him that chance to prove to him that he can do it. And isn't it better for us to err on the side of forgiveness, to err on the side of love and on grace? Isn't that what Jesus would want from us? You can understand what's going on here. So they came to, at least at that moment, to a point of irreconcilable differences. Verse 39, Barnabas took Mark with him and he went home to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so that's the issue at hand here. Now notice this is not a doctrinal issue. Unlike the council's need to come to an agreement on the gospel, this has no bearing on sound teaching. It certainly does on sound living, but not on sound teaching. This does not even have to be a sin issue either. All right? Perhaps it's a lack of wisdom on one side and a lack of grace on the other, but Luke is careful here not to assign fault. Though it does appear from verse 40 that the church signs more with Paul. It says, having commended Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord and not Barnabas and Mark. But that could just have been because they had left before the church had a chance. But friends, this was probably not an unrepentant sin issue. More than likely, there are three reasons for this conflict. Personality, methodology, and perhaps authority. Personality, I think, is the primary reason why they split. 
Barnabas was compassionate. He's tender. He's accepting. He's encouraging. He tends to side with the underdog. He's sanguine, right? Or if he, if he were to take that 16-point that personality profile, he would be ENFP, an advocate or a champion, right? That's what John Mahan is. Just so you know who's our Barnabas here, that's definitely John, okay? Paul, on the other hand, was uncompromising in work and deed. He's stable. He's analytical. He has a strong work ethic. He's courageous. He's choleric. He would be ENTJ. He would be the executive or the commander. I know this one well. And so based upon your personality, if we were to take a poll right now and ask you to raise your hand who you thought was right or who you thought was wrong, some of you would raise your hand. You think, okay, I think that Barnabas is right on this one. Others would raise your hand saying, okay, I think that Paul is right upon this one. And I think it has more to do with how God has gifted you in terms of your personality as to which side you would favor. I mean, we see this in our, in our, uh, among our elders, Right? Uh, we, uh, most all the time we're in agreement, but those few times where we're having to work through issues, right? Typically I play the part of Paul and, and Kyle, even though Kyle is an INFJ, is that right? Right. The advocate, right? He plays the part of Barnabas, right? And so, and so Caleb, who is the INTJ, the architect, he sits back and he gets to make all the decisions, which is according to plan. And so, Paul and Barnabas' biggest mistake was not having a third person of equal authority with them to make that final decision. Now, I'm, I'm kidding there because they did have the elder board at Antioch to help them during this dispute. Now, if you spend time with people, eventually you are, there's going to be a conflict of personality, right? You cannot spend time with people and not rub one another the wrong way. I, I would love to see that. If you actually thought you could, I'd love to have a discussion. And just so you know, just given my personality, I'm going to try to you know, make that not happen. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's, if you're going to spend time with people, there's going to be conflict that you're going to need to strive to work through. But sometimes, just like in chemistry, when you mix two chemicals, a negative reaction can occur. And you can, uh, when that reaction happens, you can either try to suppress that reaction or stabilize it, or you can try to control it in order to, res- to uh, further greater purposes, to achieve a greater goal. And that's what God is doing here. Sometimes personality conflicts are unavoidable, but that being said, personality should never become an excuse for the breach. All right? Just like, oh, we have different personalities, therefore we're not going to work on reconciling things. We have to learn from each other, and we have to learn to work with each other by putting God's purposes before our own. But another reason for the conflict is methodological. It's it's a matter of vision, mission, and strategy, a philosophy of ministry. You see, Barnabas' priority seemed to be training up others first, gospel proclamation second. And so if training is your first priority, you're more likely to give John Mark another shot. Paul's priority seemed to be proclamation first, training second. And though he was committed to training others up, that could not take precedent over the mission to make disciples of all nations. Look, we've got to get the gospel out there and train up others who can hang with us through thick and thin. And so it makes sense. 
for him to say based upon their passions and giftings and their experiences, differences and things like team, collaboration, chemistry, and contextual fit for Barnabas to take Mark and to go back to Cyprus, where that was a better fit for them. Mark had not abandoned the ministry at that point, had a pretty successful ministry there, and Paul takes Silas and head to Syria and Cilicia. And then there's a third possible reason for this conflict being over the issue of authority. You see, at the beginning of their relationship, Barnabas was the one with apostolic authority. Remember, he was the one that was given the charge by the church in Jerusalem to go down to Antioch and to help them along. And when he realized he needed help, he went and he got Paul to come and help him in his ministry. But over time, that relationship kind of flipped. Perhaps it was during that first missionary journey or, or among that dispute at the Jerusalem council over the inclusion of the Gentiles. But nevertheless, there was a change in their dynamic. There was a change in their relationship, in, in rank or in place. Paul was now being recognized both by Jew and by Gentile as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And perhaps this is what Mark took issue with in, in uh, Acts 13. Perhaps Barnabas was accustomed to leading and he was not willing to follow. Even if that was not an issue here though, it's easy for us to see how desires and how ambitions, how envy, expectations, previous patterns regarding relationship dynamics and pride can easily lead to a conflict over authority. But friends, regardless of how sharp this disagreement was, we need to recognize this. It did come to a resolution that would prioritize each person's passions and giftings to serve not themselves, but the mission of Christ. You see, Barnabas didn't just take his ball, John Mark, and go home. Even though he went back to Cyprus, he went back to Cyprus to strengthen the churches there. Paul didn't get all violent, breathe threats of murder, and banish Barnabas to the island of Cyprus. Instead, they split up the effort, and he took the churches in Galatia, where he, they already recognized him to be the primary spokesman. You see, both of them, their ambition was to put Christ first. And when we think about our own conflict, we need to recognize that we can be doing all the right things and still conflict emerges. Right? You doing all the right things is no guarantee that everything's going to work perfectly for you according to your plan. It won't. It's inevitable and at times it is unavoidable. But just because that's the case, it should not be that we just agree to disagree on everything. Right? As soon as a conflict emerges, be like, fine, you know, you do your thing, I'm going to do mine. Oh, it's just a, a difference of personality or method or, or issues of authority. And so I'm going to bounce. I'm going to go my way and you go your way. And this is especially true when it comes to marital conflict. Friends, the vows that we make before the Lord are binding for life. And so in marriage and even within the church, our priority should always be reconciliation, and peacemaking. Though every single person has strengths and weaknesses, rather than condemning 
one another because yours don't line up with mine and comparing ourselves? Why aren't you more like me? What we need to be doing is celebrating and encouraging the ways that God has formed each member of this body uniquely. I mean, is that what we saw in Ephesians, especially Ephesians chapter 4? Is that not what we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? Is that not what we read in Romans chapter 12 through 15? To love one another, to live in harmony with one another, to not be haughty but associate with the lowly, to never be conceited, to repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, as far as it depends upon you, Live peaceably with all. Doesn't it seem better, and rather than keeping a laundry list of all of the problems you see in someone else, that you work to be more acutely aware of your own foibles of personality, method, and issues of authority? Isn't it better to prefer one another, to outdo one another in showing honor? And at the same time that you've got this laundry list of everything you think that person is doing wrong, I've got to ask you, where's the list that you have of all the evidence of God's grace and all of the things that you have to be thankful for? Because I can assure you that list is far, far longer, but somehow that one doesn't ever get pulled out in the middle of a conflict. There's a quote from Elizabeth Elliot that we always talk about in premarital counseling. She's speaking of the relationship between a husband and a wife, but it certainly applies to all of us as well. She says, a husband lives up to perhaps 80% of her expectations. There's always the other 20% that she would like to change, and she may chip away at it for the whole of her married life without reducing it very much. She may, on the other hand, simply decide to enjoy the 80% and both of them will be happy. Friends, that same truth applies to every relationship that we've been given. I think it's also important to notice that this conflict was not the result of being unequally yoked. It wasn't like a believer being yoked to an unbeliever or a repentant follower of Christ being yoked to a, an unrepentant, self-professing follower. But they were truly brothers here. This wasn't a doctrinal issue. This wasn't an ethical or moral breach. And that's important because not every conflict that comes up in your life is the direct result of sin. Now, some of it can easily be, but not everything is. And it's important to consider that. So many times we think that whenever there's a conflict, automatically someone's sinning. And of course it's not me, so I'm judging it to be that other person. And so we start condemning them before we ever seek understanding. We fail to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so we all need to grow as students of ourselves, of other people, of ministry dynamics, while being very intentional to guard our hearts against pride, against bitterness, against envy. Because in this situation, both Paul and Barnabas had noble intentions. Both intentions were good. And the same can be true for us, even in the midst of our conflict. 
But friends, just because we seek to make peace with all doesn't mean that we seek to make peace at any price. Doctrinal errors have to be dealt with. Unrepentant sin has to be dealt with. There are divisive people who are out there. And Paul says in Titus chapter 3, As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, Paul's saying, look, you can't always work it out. Especially if someone is a contentious person. You, you have to just move on and keep to the mission that Christ has given you. You need to maintain your focus on the ministry because these disagreements can be strategic diversions from the enemy. And if someone is contentious, if someone is an accuser, a slanderer, if that person is believing and breathing falsehoods, that person is in league with Satan. And so... As a church, we need to guard against such division. But that being said, I do not believe that's what's happening here between Paul and Barnabas. Instead, God was up to something far, far bigger. You see, God's purposes are bigger than our own. And because that's true, unexpected conflict second can yield surprising results. As heartbreaking as this separation was, and though there may have been one or more people at fault here, God worked providentially to further his kingdom. Instead of one ministry team working to strengthen churches throughout Cyprus and Galatia, there were now two. Instead of one young man, John Mark, being trained up in the ministry, there were two, possibly three. Silas may have been considered an equal to Paul. I mean, he was a leading man from the church in Jerusalem, a prophet, and may have even been considered an apostle, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. But in chapter 16, the very next chapter, in verses 1 through 5, Paul is going to choose Timothy to go with him. And Timothy was from Lystra. Lystra, the city where Paul was stoned and left for dead. You don't think that Timothy wasn't fully aware of the implications of that fact when he signed on to follow Paul? And here he had in Silas and in Timothy two men who would not abandon him in the work. And instead of this journey only serving to establish and equip and expand the churches in Cyprus and Galatia, in the midst of his travels, Paul would direct, or I'm sorry, God would direct Paul onto Macedonia by means of a vision. Paul would go to Macedonia, go to Achaia, he would end up in Corinth. Not only just doing what he originally thought his plan was, but actually engaging, evangelizing, establishing, equipping, and expanding the church there as well. That was not part of their plan, but God's purposes were far, far greater. And friends, just given how close these two men appeared to be, quite honestly, it is not surprising that it would take a conflict like this to get them to separate in order to multiply for the cause of Christ. And so God used this conflict to double their ministry and to double the mission. 
It says, J.A. Alexander once said, it is equally admissible and more pleasant to suppose that this paroxysm, although directly caused by human frailty, was a providential means of sending out four men instead of two on the same errand in different directions so as at the same time to avoid collision and enlarge the field of missionary labor. Friends, ultimately I think that this is why Paul or Luke does not assign fault here. Because he recognized that God is up to something far, far bigger. The purpose, his purpose to fulfill the mission of Christ as his people bear witness to his name and the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth was being fulfilled more rapidly, more aggressively by the two of these men being separated. But as hope giving as this is, that God is using all things, even conflicts and separation together for good, that is not the end of the story. Now, though I am sure there were hard feelings at that moment when they separated and they left Antioch, Paul gives us a hint of his feelings and his relationship some four to seven years later when he wrote in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6, Paul clearly considers Barnabas to be his colleague, a fellow soldier, a shepherd, a leader of Christ's church. You get this hint that, you know what? Things are better between them. And we're given an even clearer picture of his relationship with John Mark. You see, though at the time of Acts 15, Paul did not think John Mark was ready. And he was not willing to take him along. By the time you get to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Mark was with Paul. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul calls Mark his fellow worker. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says to him as he's in prison in Rome, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. You see, at the moment of Acts 15, John Mark was not useful to Paul for ministry. But by the time you get to 2 Timothy 4, by God's grace, he would be. Through the discipleship of Barnabas, through his ministry experience through the sanctifying and reconciling power of the Holy Spirit, their relationship was fully restored and John Mark grew to become useful, a fellow worker for the cause of Christ. And that's because God's work within each and every one of them was not yet finished. Let that be an encouragement to you. If you're here and maybe you're kind of thinking in terms of ministry that that's something that the Lord has kind of placed on your heart, but you don't know. But you've got people who are over you. You've got your elders and they're saying to you, you know what, you're not ready. You're not ready yet. Don't let that be an ultimate discouragement to you. Don't let that be a means for you to just fight back and push against them and, and slander them or, or derail you know, God's intention and God's purposes in your life. That is not a, a, a permanent, lifelong determination. God is up to something. 
And so instead, let that motivate you to take the position of a learner, to be humble, to be prayerful, to be patient, to do the work that the Lord has given you right here and now to do. And as you prove yourself faithful with little, God will make you faithful with much. And so friends, this ought to give us hope that whenever we find ourselves in conflict, it does not have to be destructive. Conflict does not have to be negative. It does not have to be destructive. In fact, God uses everyday mundane conflict that happens moment by moment in our lives to serve his purposes, to expose and eradicate sin, to lead us to repentance and faith, to help us to practice confession and forgiveness, to make and to grow many disciples and maturing disciples who are formed and conformed into the likeness of Christ. And even when humanly speaking, this does not fit within our plans and we find ourselves at an impasse, it gives us hope to remember that this moment, no matter how discouraging, no matter how disappointing it might be, is not forever. This is not the way it's always going to be. It's not the way it always has to be. God is still at work. And for every one thing that you can see in your life that God is up to, God is up to at least a thousand more. And you have no idea. Are you going to dismiss the grace of God that is at work in your life just because it doesn't go the way that you want it to? God is will bring to completion what he has begun in the day of Christ. Which means that each and every person here who belongs to him will be conformed into the image of his son. We will become like him. And God will use any and every single event in your life to do that. Every hardship, every difficulty, every, every argument, every disagreement, every time you can't see eye to eye with your spouse, it doesn't matter what it is, God will use it all. And so, like my wife has to tell me, she probably told me about a thousand times now, don't let the conflict, don't let the battle discourage you, keep you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. Just keep to the mission. Stay focused on what he has for you. Paul, Barnabas, and the church in Antioch, they leveraged this conflict to serve the cause of Christ. Regardless of their disagreement, the mission of the church came first and God used it powerfully. And the mission of the church came first because the mission of the church is the mission of Christ. Christ who is to be preeminent. Christ who is to be first in all things. The one who made you and sustains your life allows you to take the breath that you take. Gave his life up by dying a gruesome, humiliating, and unjust death for sin. To pay for your rebellion, to pay for your pride, 
to pay for your selfishness and your self-seeking. And he rose again so that you might be forever reconciled, not just to God, but to all of his people. To bring into his possession people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who belong to him to live as sons and daughters, children and co-heirs with Christ. His love overcoming our love for ourselves so that we might now live for him. His will and his ways becoming our will and our ways. His mission becoming our mission so that as we reflect upon his love that surpasses all knowledge, as we reflect upon his abounding grace and his immeasurable mercy towards us, We might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Jesus has made us his own as our creator and as our redeemer so that we might live for him. And if we can keep that in mind, it changes the conflict. It removes some of the conflict because the conflict won't be as motivated by our own sin. But some will still remain. And even when it does remain, it changes our outlook. We have hope that God is up to something bigger for my good and for the good of all of His people. And grasping that can help us to be patient It can help us to be prayerful. It can help us to anticipate, to long, to look eagerly upon what God is going to do and to strive to leverage that conflict for the cause of Christ. Friends, we can be confident, not because of anything that we do, but that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It will happen. But... It won't happen because we do it. Because we take a knee-jerk, emotion-driven, man-centered attempt to reconcile the conflict. We can wait. We can yield our longings for the sake of others. And in those times where we need to confront, we do so lovingly. We do so for the glory of Christ, for the good of His church, And for the purpose of strengthening one another's faith, not to tear one another down. And if it takes a while, friends, that's okay. As long as I'm not becoming bitter, because I know that God's at work. And so we pursue sanctification And reconciliation, always under the power and leadership of the Holy Spirit and not our own. Confessing and forgiving, repenting and believing, because we truly know that God is working all things together for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, not yours and mine. And so friends, if you find yourself in conflict this morning... Maybe at home or at work, maybe among family or friends. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let your emotions overwhelm you or the lies of Satan to deter you. 
Keep to the mission that Christ has given you. Be prayerful and patient as you seek to love Christ and His church, putting Christ first, others second, before yourself. Do not grow weary in doing good, for at the right time, you will reap the reward. And the end, I can guarantee you, because God guarantees you, that it will be worth it. When we stand before the Lord, all of these heartbreaking trials that have overwhelmed us, caused us to shed tears, stopped us in our tracks, left us in pain upon our beds, will be considered a light and momentary affliction that God has used to overwhelm us with an eternal weight of glory. And we can trust in that. And in that, we have hope. So because God's purposes are bigger than our own, unexpected conflict can yield surprising results. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who works. That you are the one who sent your Son to shed his blood and to rise again in order to reconcile all things to yourself. That through your work, we are being changed, we are being transformed being remade as new creations into the likeness of Christ. You are a God who orchestrates and sovereignly directs all things for our good so that every conflict, every difficulty, every trial and circumstance, situation that we encounter is no accident. It's not outside of you and what you are doing, but serves as a means through which we grow in our love and knowledge of you and in our ability to truly me be one of your children. Lord, I pray that our desire would be to put Christ first in all things. That as we come to the table here to partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember that it's His blood and His body broken that enables us to come together as a body to be unified and to remember His death until He comes again. Lord, may our emotions and our feelings and our circumstances not cause us to lose sight of the eternal glory that is ours in Him. We ask this in the name of Your Son, who is worthy of our lives. Amen.